Amen, amen. I want you to get your Bibles out with me. We are in a series right now, as you can see behind me. It's called Upside Down Kingdom. And the reason we're calling it that is because when you look at the kingdom that Jesus described in the New Testament, it seems upside down to the ways of this world. Now, maybe not this week. Have you noticed that the world itself seems upside down? And so it seems like the kingdom of God makes more and more sense every day. But Jesus introduced his kingdom. And the reality is, it really is countercultural. In fact, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And he tried to make sense of the craziness of the world when he was alive. And yes, it was still crazy 3,000 years ago. And he looked at this world, and here's what Solomon wrote about it in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. He said, I have seen slaves on horseback while princes go on foot like slaves. In other words, in his cultural context, he saw some things and he just said, that ain't right. <laughs> like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and all of us, if you would just peruse the scriptures, you would find there are story after story of illustrations of the upside down kingdom, where it looks like those who are God's chosen people are, are on foot, while those who are rebellious and have turned their backs on God are sitting high on the horse. I think about people like wicked Haman, who was ruling in the court. While, while the righteous Mordecai was sitting outside the gate. Or, or David, anointed by God to be king, was wandering around in the mountains while rebellious Saul is ruling in the state. Or, or I think about the prophet Elijah, who's hiding out in a cave while the wicked queen Jezebel is mocking in the palace. But who of us that knows those stories would ever envy the high position of those rebels? right? None of us would. We would all love to take the role of those humble servants to know that we had a significant part to play in the kingdom. And the reason we know that and the reason we would choose that is because all of us understand that it's God who writes the final chapter. It's God who turns the page. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 to fix your eyes on Christ Jesus. Why? Because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. And can I just encourage somebody today that might feel discouraged, that might feel overlooked, that might feel a little bit perplexed in your life. If you trust God to be the author and the finisher of your faith, I want to tell you when the last line on the last page is written, to God be the glory for great things he has done. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you today. That yes, we're a part of an upside down kingdom. And yes, there are times when the things that God calls us to doesn't quite make sense in the here and in the now. But there is coming a day when the lowly will be exalted, when the least will become the greatest. And we will discover that though you lose your life for his namesake, you gain it. You gain it. I want to invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 5. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I know everybody's probably got a favorite scripture or maybe a favorite Bible story, or maybe you even have a favorite conversation or topic when you're having spiritual conversations that you like to go to, but this is the Upside Down series, so let me tell you, this one's not it, okay? Just a little heads up, I picked a passage that nobody said, oh, that's my favorite. I love that verse, but we're going to lean into it today anyway because it's God's word, amen? And it's the words of Jesus. 
Look at it with me in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus speaking, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Didn't that make you feel great? <laughs> Somebody's like, go, go get the kids. I'm going to be in the car, honey. This church ain't for us, man. This ain't our church. You're telling me today of all days you're going to tell me, love my enemies, pray for those that persecute you. Come on, man. Am I the only one that thinks that way sometimes? Okay, well, I'm just telling you the conversation I had with the Lord earlier this week. Verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Can I just say, as I meditated on that this week, I wish it was harder to understand. I really do. I wish it just didn't make that much sense because the fact that it's so explicitly clear, it just makes it that much harder to deal with, doesn't it? Jesus said, and this is the reality of the upside down kingdom that I want you to get today. Love your enemies. In the kingdom of God, we're called to love our enemies. Now, for the person that might already be pushing back going, well, this is, this is going to be an easy Sunday because I don't really have any enemies. Maybe that's you. You go, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of nice to everybody. Everybody's friends with me. I don't really have any enemies. Let me just say to you a word of caution. You might need to be more concerned not having enemies than those that are trying to figure out how to love their enemies. And I'm going to tell you why. Because Jesus said very clearly in the scriptures, if you try to follow me, you will be persecuted. In other words, just for the simple fact that you made a confession of faith in Jesus Christ, you have convictions based on the word of God, you follow a moral compass that's outlined in the word of God, you are an offense. That doesn't mean we try to be an offense. It doesn't mean we're, uh, we're offensive people. Now, if you're just a jerk, I don't, have a, I, don't, I don't have a scripture to back you up on that, man. But, but if people are offended because of the gospel that you live out, that's, that's just par for the course. It's going to be that way. In fact, the apostle Paul said this to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He said, in fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if your life was a meme, it would say, you exist, 2020 culture offended. Like that, that's just the reality. Like you don't have to try. You're just offensive if you are living for the kingdom. So question, do you have any enemies? Answer, I kind of hope so. Yes. I kind of hope so because if, if not Brother, maybe your righteousness isn't showing enough. And there's some other issues of your life that you need to, to work out because the reality is, again, we're not trying to offend anyone, but you, you stand as your life stands in judgment of those that fall short of the call of God on their own lives. So if you're a Christian, even if you're the perfect Christian in the room, 
you have enemies. And if you're not that one perfect Christian who, who was probably in the early service, let's be honest, <laughs> then you have enemies too. Maybe for different reasons, but we all have them. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we love our enemies? Here's what I want to do today. I just want to let the word of God wash over us. We're going to stay right here in this text. Look at it with me again. Verse 43, Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, let me just say that is not what the old covenant said. The love your neighbor part is, that was in there. God said that, but the hate your enemy, they added that. So Jesus didn't come on the scene to contradict scripture. Jesus came on to clarify the scripture. In fact, I think it's verse 17 in this same chapter. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So he's not here to contradict the word of God. He's here to clarify because what happened was all of the oral traditions had been added to the text and they called it the Talmud. And they believed all this stuff that they had added to the gospel. And so Jesus comes on and says, I I believe the word of God. The word of God says, love your neighbor. But here's what the oral tradition did. The oral tradition said, if that's a true statement, then something that sounds like the opposite of that must also be a true statement. So if God said, love your neighbor, I guess we can assume we can hate our enemy. Anybody ever done that to you? Where you said one thing and then they just assumed something that sounds like the opposite is true and then all of a sudden there was a conflict? I, I dare say it's probably happened more than a few times this year. You know, like if, for example, if, you, if I was to say to someone, you know, I really think we need justice reform and then they all of a sudden go, you mean you don't support our law enforcement? You don't back the blue? No, I didn't say that. I, I said... I, or, or if I said, you know what, I, I really think we need border security. And then somebody jumps over here and says, you mean you want to separate kids from their parents? You want to lock people in cages? No, no. No, that doesn't mean this. Or, or if I say, you know, I'm pro-life. I, I believe that life begins at conception. And then somebody looks at me and says, I can't believe somebody with three daughters doesn't believe in women's rights. That's not the same thing. That's exactly what Jesus is dealing with. How many of you know we hadn't changed much in a couple thousand years? We still got the same issues. The Bible says, love your neighbor. Jesus, that doesn't mean hate your enemy. See, here's what religion does. Religion, because it's works-based, because we have to do a certain amount of things to get the approval of God or of others, religion always looks for the loophole. Religion always looks for the path of least resistance. So if God's word says, love your neighbor, religion says, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, who do I not have to love? You you remember Luke 10, the story where the the religious leader comes to Jesus and and he asks him a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you're the religious leader. Why don't you tell me what the word says? And he quoted it to him. The man said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, good answer. Go and do that and you'll have eternal life. And then what did the guy say? Who's my neighbor? What's the loophole? How much obedience is actually required? That's the real question. And you remember how Jesus responded? He launched into the parable of the Good Samaritan. In other words, Jesus told a story where the hero of the story was the, the, the sect of 
society that was most hated by the audience. In other words, Jesus' response was to say, your neighbor includes your enemy. That's what Jesus was saying in that moment. Your neighbor even includes your enemy. So Jesus communicates something to us powerfully here in these verses. And it's actually the sixth point in a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And in all six of the analogies that that Jesus gives here in Matthew chapter 5, what he's doing is he's taking an Old Testament statement. He's taking something that everybody understood to be God's word that was connected to an outward action. And and he's digging deeper like an expert surgeon. He's going beneath the surface and he's going to the heart motivation behind the command. And he's saying, let's look a little deeper. And can I just ask us, can we do that today? Can we, can we look deeper? Can we go beyond the surface level and say, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, would you cut to the very core of who I am with your word? Would you go to the heart motivation? Would you get me beyond all my feelings and my oral tradition? And would you speak to me on a heart level? Could we do that today? Jesus gives these examples, and that's what they are, by the way. They're, they're examples. They're not all-inclusive statements. They're not all-encompassing. He tells us some really hard things, but he does it for a reason. He wants to get to the motivation base. But it doesn't mean that this is always the way to react in every situation. Like, for example, the one that we just read in verse 44, Jesus said, but I tell you, pray for those that persecute you. That's the principle. That's what we should do. But uh, can I just be honest? That's not always the right thing to do in every situation. I mean, if, if I'm preaching this message this morning and an armed man busts in the back door wielding a weapon, I want to tell you right now, I don't want Phil and the ushers to pray for the one who's trying to persecute me. That is not the plan at all. No, we'll pray later. If somebody comes in here with a weapon... I want them to know they walked into a Pentecostal church. We believe that people can get slain in the spirit or in the flesh. I won't do it either way. I mean, I want Phil to exercise the five-fold ministry. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't let him get this far. I'll pray for the persecuted. You deal with the conflict. You know, but there's, there's situations where these don't actually apply. But how many of you know we don't, we don't need help finding the exemptions to the rule? We know how to, we know how to find the exemptions. What we need to do is, is we need to be able to understand that what Jesus is saying is that these attitudes, they ought to be our first impulse. They ought to be our instinct. They ought to be our spiritual reflex. These ought to be our natural inclination. Jesus said, We love our enemies. Why? Because we're kingdom citizens, and that means the spirit of the king lives on the inside of us. And he started out this six-point outline with a statement back in verse 20 of Matthew 5, a statement that kind of leveled the whole room, put everybody on the same playing field. Here's what he said. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. When he said that, it shocked everybody because everybody assumed those Pharisees and teachers of the law were the most spiritual people in the room. But what was Jesus saying? He was saying, look, your your outward action is not the determining factor. It's your DNA. 
It's your inward motivation. And so Jesus begins to give examples of, of some ways that they've kind of focused on the outward persona and they've missed the heart of the message of the law. And Jesus begins, he starts with murder as the first example. In verse 21, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's pretty clear. Nobody's debating that law, right? But they had taken it so literal as to say that if we don't shed innocent blood, if we don't actually take a life, then hey, we're good, right? And Jesus went deeper. He said, no, there's a heart motive behind it. Jesus spoke about emotional murder. Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart, if you have evil intent in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart. And then he goes to his next point in the sermon, and he talks about adultery. And hey, and again, no, nobody's debating that law, right? I mean, thou shalt not commit adultery. We get it. But they had so narrowed their focus of that command that they had basically come to the conclusion that if this doesn't end up between the sheets with somebody else's spouse, then hey, no harm, no foul. And God cuts deeper when Jesus says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus says in that moment, look, adultery doesn't start in the bedroom. It starts in the heart. It starts in the mind. And Jesus goes another step further and he talks about divorce. And again, in that day, they wanted to argue about where is the loophole? What are the conditions that we can allow a divorce for? And Jesus took them all the way back to the word of God. He took them back to the created purpose for a marriage to glorify God as Christ loves the church. And then he goes to the next point in his sermon and he talks about oaths in verse 33. He talks about Make, here's what they did. I mean, the Bible is very clear in the Old Testament that, that God hates a false oath. He hates a false oath, and they knew that. So here's what they did. Again, look, looking for the loophole, looking for an oral tradition to validate my interpretation of God's plan. They would, they would make an oath, but they wouldn't make an oath to God. Instead, they, they would make their oath using some kind of a formula that would, that would buffer their integrity. So they would make a vow, but they would swear to the earth. Or they would make a vow and they would swear to Jerusalem. That way, the oath stood. But if, if they had to go back on their word, they would say, well, we, we didn't break an oath to God because we made an oath to the earth. We made an, earth, an oath to the heavens. We made an oath to Jerusalem. And so Jesus responds here in verse 34. Look at it with me. Jesus said, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Although some of us have figured out how to do that, haven't we? <laughs> some of y'all cracked that code. CVS aisle three, you know what I'm talking about. Verse 37, look at what Jesus said. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. And then in the next section, the fifth point of his sermon, Jesus talks about retaliation. And, and, he, and he quotes a, an often quoted scripture from the Old Testament. 
In verse 38, he says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was an Old Testament case law. In other words, it was designed for the court of law to discourage people from retaliation. If you knew the punishment was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you'd think twice before committing the crime. So they took a case law that was intended for the courtroom and they brought it into their personal lives. So a a law about not retaliating actually became an excuse for that very thing. Well, God said it, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He's going to get his comeuppance. No, that's not what God said. That's your interpretation of making the kingdom fit in to your lens. And so line by line, Jesus just digs, digs deeper into the heart issues until he comes to this one that we're looking at today. And he says, love your enemies. These were all examples of people adding to the word of God or or looking for loopholes to validate their outward actions and not deal with inward motivations. And and by the time Jesus was finished, he had pretty effectively squashed the righteousness of everybody in the room. Like nobody felt worthy. Nobody could do any of this. Like, wow, if I look lustfully, wow, if I think angry, oh my gosh. Like nobody measures up. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point of the sermon, because we are never going to live out the DNA of kingdom citizens if we don't have the spirit of the king living inside of us. How desperately we need the spirit of Jesus to fill the church today. Look at verse 45 with me again. Jesus said, if you do that, if you love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, he said that you may be children of your father in heaven. In other words, here's what he's saying. If you actually love your enemies, then it will become evident that you are my children. If you love your enemies. Jesus said it like this in another place. He said, a tree is known by its fruit. So there should be something outwardly tangible, uniquely different in your life from the life of a lost person. It's not that we work for our salvation, but we do work from our salvation. There is something that is produced out of our life. And it's like this. If you can get this picture in your mind, the fruit of our life, the fruit of of our righteousness is evidence of the root of redemption. The fruit of our righteousness is evidence of the root of redemption. And, And Jesus is saying, if you do this, if your love goes beyond your own emotions and loving your friends and loving your neighbors and the people that you wanted to love anyway and the people you wanted to greet, when it goes to that level, all of the sudden, it begins to testify. And that's what he's talking about in verse 46 and 47 when he says, well, you know, loving your friends, I mean, the tax collectors do that. Greeting your neighbor, the the pagans, they do that. What's your reward? And that's not a big deal. I mean, we love to be with the people that we love. I mean, it certainly feels good to be in this house with with other believers and to know that there's a a mutual affection that we've got going on here, to know that that we have agreement on a lot of things and, and that you've got my back and I've got, that feels great. And Jesus isn't knocking that. There's plenty of scriptures we could have used today to preach about how important that is. But what he's actually saying in this moment is that until your love goes beyond convenience and moves into the realm of sacrifice, it's not a compelling witness. That should have got two amens. I mean, right? Two? Can I get one? 
unless your love moves into the realm of sacrifice. Jesus is saying it's not a compelling witness. It doesn't influence anybody for the sake of the kingdom. Why? Everybody, everybody loves the people they love. There's nothing special about that. That's human nature. And then he gets to verse 48. Let's read this one again because it, it troubles me. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, doesn't that verse just make you cringe a little bit? Like, in your humanity? Like, uh, because we know nobody's perfect, right? Except God. No, nobody's perfect. I had, I had to do a little deep dive on that word. And the, the word perfect in the original Greek, you know what it means? It means completeness. It's a word that means to set out for a definite point. A definite point. It's like before you start a journey, you drop a pin on a depth. You know where you're going. It's like a compass. If you've ever used a compass, then, then you know a compass does not tell you where you're going. That's not the responsibility of a compass. The role of a compass is to point to north. The compass points the needle towards north, and if I know where north is, now I can understand where I'm at based on what is right, what is north. That's what it means to set out for a definite point. And, and that's what Jesus is saying when he says, be perfect. He's saying, set out for a definite point. Be complete. Be resolute. And can I tell you, Jesus is our true north. John chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, that Jesus, he loved his disciples. And it says, he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. You know that phrase, to the end, in the original Greek language that it was written in? It actually means he loved them to perfection, with completeness. He loved them wholly with a full love. And we see it over the next several chapters in John's gospel. We looked at some of it last week. But as Jesus goes from the, 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 the Last Supper out into the garden and he's arrested, he makes sure in that moment that even though he's being arrested, that his disciples aren't arrested as well. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross at one point, he even looks at John and, and he says, John, this is your mother. Woman, this is your son. What's he doing? Even in a moment of agony, Jesus is loving his mom and making sure she's going to be taken care of. And then as he hangs there gasping for his final breath on the cross, he looks over to the thief who was justly accused for his wrongdoing. And Jesus says, forgiveness is yours. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What was he doing? He was loving fully. He was loving to the end. Jesus showed us what perfect love looks like. And as the people of God, we have to set our coordinates on love and let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. So how do we do that? How do we do that? And I'm going to end with this. I just want to tell you three things quickly, how we do this. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. And the first thing you need to know, if you want to know how to love like this, number one, Remember who you were. That's so key. I'm, I'm talking to Christians now. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to the, the saved, those that are confident in your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
If you're going to love your enemies, you got to remember who you were. The Bible says this in Romans 5, 8. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know who you were? You were a sinner. But, but Paul doesn't stop there. It's even worse than that. Because in verse 10, he said this. In verse 10, he said, for if while you were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You know what the Bible says? God saved you when you were his enemy. That means if love doesn't extend to our enemies, then none of us are in the kingdom. Aren't you thankful that love extended to Jesus' enemies? We got to remember who we were. Otherwise, it's going to be too easy to disqualify other people from that same redeeming love. Number two, you got to trust the justice of God. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes the reason it's hard to love people is because we feel like they've, they've done us wrong. There's been an injustice. And if I forgive them, then all, all of a sudden, it's, the score's not even. And so we, we believe this false idea that somehow we're holding something over them by holding on to unforgiveness. Like, like somehow, if, if I don't forgive them, if I hold a grudge, at least I still got that on them. And how many of you know, usually you're the only one leave, losing sleep in that relationship? They're sleeping like a baby, and you're over at your house, and your stomach's in knots, holding on to a wound from yesterday, and you're allowing it to cause pain today. If you're ever going to be able to love your enemies, you're going to have to trust the justice of God. Romans 12 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, when you just... When you don't trust the justice of God and you refuse to forgive, it's actually an expression of unbelief. It's unbelief that God is just. It's unbelief that God's going to make it right. So you feel like you've got to. And the reality is we hold nothing on those people. The reality is unforgiveness is a prison cell that locks from the inside. Unforgiveness and hatred is like drinking a vial of deadly poison and waiting for somebody else to drop over dead. But when we trust the justice of God, we can leave it in his hands. We can say, I, I, I love them. I, I might not trust them because trust is based on merit, but love isn't. I'm going to love them and I'm going to entrust the Lord to be my avenger. And the third thing is this. You want to know how to love people, even your enemies? Start anticipating your reward. Don't you love rewards? Don't we love incentives? The kingdom of God is full of them. And so oftentimes, we, we can forget that God has a reward laid up for us. And so we, we can... We can cling to our battle lines feeling like, like we're losing out on something and we find ourselves trying to grab a hold of sand 
Jesus said, the things of this world, moth and rust are going to destroy them. But if we can keep our sight on our reward. Luke recorded this sermon. Jesus probably preached it a number of times. Matthew called it the Sermon on the Mount. Luke called the Sermon on the Plain. Maybe he did multiple service. Maybe that was the deal. And when Luke wrote about this sermon in Luke chapter 6, he said it like this. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. Here's my prayer. All all this week, here's my prayer. Maybe you want to make it yours. God, increase my love. Increase my love. John the Baptist said it best when he said, I must decrease and he must increase. So when I say increase my love, I recognize I, I've already, I'm tapped out sometimes. I, I have a limited capacity. But if the spirit of the king dwells in me, then the DNA of the kingdom is going to be in operation in my life. Increase my love. Increase my love. So we're going to take a few moments right here at the end of this service. And we're going to offer up in response to the word of God these words that we sang earlier. Lord, show us your glory. Show us your glory. But can I just say this? When we say that, we're not saying, God, do something cool. Like, God, impress us. Because can I tell you the way that the glory of God is demonstrated in the earth? Primarily, it's through his church. It's through his people. So when I pray, God, show me your glory, what I'm saying is, God, let your glory shine through my life. Let it shine through me. We're going to pray in just a moment, but I have to give you a picture that's been on my heart for the last three days. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes his life as a jar of clay. He says, we, we, we have this message, this glory in earthen vessels, in jars of clay. And then he talked about everything he went through. He said, we were, we were broken, we were perplexed, we were crushed. Paul came to the conclusion that, that all that does is it, it shows what's on the inside. When I'm cracked, when I'm broken, it reveals the glory that I contain. What Paul was saying, and what I want to remind us of, what the Lord has been reminding me of, that what's in me is way more important than what people see on the outside. And no other place is that greater seen than at the cross. Maybe you're here today and and you've never even given your life to Jesus. You've never asked the spirit of Jesus to, to fill you up and give you his love for others. But I'm going to tell you, only, only Jesus' love can make the difference. When Jesus hung on the cross in agony for six hours, suspended between heaven and earth, the Bible says that the crowds looked at him and they jeered, crucify him, crucify him. And while they were saying that, while he was being broken, 
He looked down and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When Jesus was broken, love spilled out. What's going to spill out of us when we're broken?